Hello and welcome to another episode of the Media and Meets podcast where we speak to all sorts of people who work in sound and music. On the show this time we have Dave Spears from GeForce Software who have been making virtual studio instruments for a number of years, recreating classic synths in software form like the Mellotron, the ARP Odyssey and the Oscar. Dave was also heavily involved in the MIDI Fat Boy, which was a MIDI controller that came out in the mid-90s and pretty much revolutionized the consumer market for that kind of product. He also directed a documentary called Bright Sparks, which is about four of the biggest synth manufacturers and the stories behind them. He's an amazing guy. He's worked with a ton of people. Uh, you can now donate to the podcast. Uh, there are a number of ways to do that. You can do it by PayPal or Ko-fi. You can support the podcast by buying the stuff that I sell and also sharing it around with people if you so desire. But enough of that, let's get on with the show. And the first question I asked Dave was about his musical beginnings. Oh, absolutely. My earliest memories of sound and music are absolutely my parents, really, with... What do they you call it? It was a radiogram in those days. Kind of piece of furniture that had, you know, the radio and the record player all in it. I've I've talked about this with a couple of people lately in that I think that probably sparked the obsession with sound more than music. Because I was one of those, you know, kids who would get as close, I'm sure everybody did it at some point, but get as close as they could to the speaker to kind of hear all the kind of frequencies and the kind of definition, you know, even through crappy old records. But yeah, it was certainly, definitely through that. My mum was, my mum was only 20 years older than me. So it was obviously 20 when she had me, which was pretty young. Mm. Uh, so she's always been into stuff, Beatles, Rolling Stones, all that kind of stuff. So I kind of always grew up with music around. She used to play harmonica as well, which is kind of amusing. Wow. Was in a skiffle band. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's just always kind of been around. Mm, but yeah, those big, um, those all in one sort of, it was almost like a sort of a bureau with speakers and an amp built into it, wasn't it? Probably weighed about 50 kilograms or something stupid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like, yeah, proper wood and varnish and all that kind of stuff. I, I did have a look the other day, actually. It was bizarre because my folks had some really interesting furniture at a particular point in our lives. And I kind of... Um, in fact, this is mad. I was watching Antiques Roadshow, and when they do the best, better, or not as good, and one of their pieces of furniture was on it. It wasn't theirs, but it was the same piece of furniture, and it turns out it was the best. So I started kind of looking at, oh, you know, is this kind of... It was very cool kind of Scandinavian-style 70s stuff, hmm. and that then led me to go back and kind of look at old radiograms. And, like, in the 70s, they had a kind of B&O system, which was like, whoa, this is kind of top-flight stuff. But obviously prior to that, so I started looking at these radiograms and it was like, it was a little bit of the obsessive purchaser in me that thought, I should just get one of these and try it. But my wife put me straight on that quite quickly. Mm. <laughs> we have, you have no room. Yeah, I can definitely, could definitely see myself at one time like buying three or four of them and going, yeah, I'll make one of a good one out of these four yeah. massive pieces of equipment. <laughs> And what makes you, what makes you say that yeah you got into the sound rather than the music like what what sort of yeah why would you say Mainly sound more than music when I listen to some of the tracks that I remember listening to now they were really quite bad you know musically they were quite bad 
uh, there was a B-side, and this is mental, but there was a B-side of a Kenny Everett song, and I just loved it. And, you know, obviously with YouTube and stuff, I was like, oh, I haven't heard that. And then I went and listened to it, and it was like, actually, that was really bad. <laughs> it must have been. It was a kind of self-justification thing. So it must have been the sound. It must have been the sound, because it turned out it was produced by, I forget who it was, but it was, you know, obviously a kind of name producer at the time. Hmm. Probably Tony Hatch or one of those old boys. Yeah. And did you go in, did you, uh, like, did you play musical instruments as a child? Did you have, like, a, a progression into making your own sounds? Yeah, it was kind of weird. I uh, did the kind of obligatory piano lessons uh, and all the grades and that stuff. In fact, what was funny is my folks bought this piano and my sister is kind of three years younger than me. We were both kind of forced, effectively, to have piano lessons. Same. And uh, I really... The difference between my sister and myself was massive and, and, and is still quite massive in that she can still read. And I can't really, you know, I mean, it's a struggle for me now, but she's a very fluent reader. But what she cannot do is improvise. And what I used to do was kind of learn the piece and I'd memorise it. And she can't do that. Uh, I would memorise it, which was quite funny when we were having lessons because the piano teacher obviously sussed me out and was like, would just make me stop and say where are you on the sheet music and i'd think oh, i just played a couple of high notes we're up there yeah I'll, up there no we're down there and it was just like oh, rumbled again <laughs> what sheet music oh yeah 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 exactly <laughs> and i'd kind of got into pop music at the time and it was like i don't want to play all this i don't want to do this grade stuff it was very uh it was dull really uh so i was constantly taking down sheet music that i bought from you know the local store and kind of like can you teach me how to play this? Can I play this? And she was like, no, you have to do this to get through the grades. But I realised quite quickly, in fact, there was a lot of really good piano players at the school I was at, and I realised quite quickly I was never going to be as good as any of those. So I became a drummer instead. Uh, I decided that drums was the way forward. Uh, and so I've always had this very strange relationship between drumming and keyboards which actually worked really well in the 90s because when all the house stuff happened you know the vamping piano was the kind of thing so if your rhythmic chops were up to scratch you could get work via that route so that kind of worked for a while but yeah it was very strange i was a sort of yeah i was a drum fanatic but every single penny i ever made playing in bands and you know just doing function gigs or whatever gigs uh I spent buying synths. Nice. There was always this very bizarre relationship between the two things. It's amazing how many people that I meet in the industry who started out as drummers but are in music tech. Hmm. Why do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe it's... I don't know. I've had, I've had a few theories over the years, possibly that um, we were never that competent as pianists. So we looked for other avenues and being a synthesist is a slightly lazy form of being a pianist because the focus is more on the sound than your chops. Yeah, you can hide world. behind filter sweeps and things, can't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly, which we all do. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, uh, maybe. I don't know. I think it's probably the combination that... I think I just got to a certain age. I started listening to certain records and... Whereas the classical stuff was, I've said this before, was very kind of cerebral. When I started listening to a lot of early Stevie Wonder stuff, it just moved me. 
and it was more a visceral thing. So I think the groove element and the kind of keyboard element stuff really started to resonate with me. So I think the kind of combination of the two was was kind of brought to the fore with that, really. Mm. It's interesting that you bring up that combination of, of starting out and drumming and going into the melodic stuff. It reminds me of Ben Folds. Do you know the pianist, Ben Folds? Yeah, yeah. He started out as a drummer. Like He was a drummer for many, many years. And... He was talking in a podcast uh, a few months ago about um, how it, how that sort of uh, interpreted his playing or like entered into the way he plays. Um, and yeah, it, it sort of dawned on me that, yeah, he does play in a very um, like percussive rhythmic style. And yeah, he wasn't really a natural pianist as well, when it, um, which is which is funny. But he said, yeah, coming from the drumming background, it was able able to sort of place himself at the forefront of the music in a different way than someone who'd just come classically trained through it? Yeah. Yeah, no, I can see that. And also classically trained pianists. Do you know, sometimes there's, there's been a lot of occasions, particularly when I've had a few people in the studio, they just clutter everything up. When they play a synth, it's all cluttered. It's not about textures. It's more about the kind of dexterity. But I find that really fascinating on certain synths. For example, the CS80, you can take a classical pianist because of the keyboard mechanism. You know, you've got the weighted keys and they will play it like a piano and it actually sounds really nice. Hmm. But you put them on a kind of non-weighted Jupiter 8 or something like that and it all starts to become this kind of barrage. So it's those subtleties. Yeah, and I think you learn space in, you know, when you're a drummer, you learn about space and rhythm and dynamics, I suppose. That's true. And I think That's bringing true. that to music is really fascinating. It's funny, I was offered the gig with, do you remember that band D-Ream? Yes, I do, yeah, Brian Cox. Yeah, and I've got a feeling I was offered the gig when he left. <laughs> uh, uh, my my uh, oldest friend's brother was in the band. Uh, I think he was a percussion player and might have been a guitarist or something, but he called me and he said, oh, the keyboard player's left, you know, we need a keyboard player to get through this tour. And I remember they sent me down a load of tracks and I was kind of, literally bashing my way through them and I just didn't feel confident enough there was a couple of ballads they did and I was like I, I, I don't really feel confident enough to do that on because they were supporting take that and they were big stages and I was like I'm not really up to it and I went back to this guy Wendon and said yeah I, you know I'm not really sure whether I'm up to it and he just said mate you're a drummer it's house piano you could bash it out without even blinking kind of thing he didn't it wasn't enough to persuade me to do it in fact i think at the time i'd got another job but it was like it was very interesting that that he had kind of picked up on that mm. it's just all rhythmic house house vamping piano <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I do love those like the mu the, there's um a couple of mu pianos that i just really like the sound of the you know the rompler the rompler sort of sense of the 90s there's some i think they did a thing called a is it a procussion or something or performance which was like a key uh, uh piano yeah, module yeah. and yeah. i had that and i was like it really sounded great i mean it might sound rubbish now but i remember it being like it was just a really upfront piano sound that was pure 1990s you know i think that's really fascinating as well because we've often talked you know what is it that makes a classic instrument as opposed to a vintage instrument. And I think it is based on a nostalgic thing. I think that when you reach a certain age and you start hearing those sounds, for example, uh, not that long ago, I got my hands on an M1, Korg M1. And again, that piano, straight away, it's like 
transported back to 89, 90, 91. Definitely. In fact, with Nick Bat, you know, doing Tom's Diner stuff, it was like, that's that sound. Uh, Gabrielle with that nylon string guitar on uh, Want to Be Wiser or whatever the track was. And immediately you play those sounds. You It just transports you back to that era. And I think that's what makes a kind of classic instrument. Mm. But it has to take that time to go through being unhip and then for you to discover it at a later time to go, ah, yeah. Because honestly, I mean, things like D50 were so overused at the time. Yeah, they were And they D50. become super, super cliched. But now, whenever I play the D50 I just think of you know Prince's Love Sexy album which was just D50 all the way through personified and that album was mega for me so I don't think about the D50 with native log dance and all of that kind of stuff I think about it with the Arco strings and the cheesy piano sound that he used on Love Sexy so yeah it's amazing how instruments kind of go through that do class as classic what would be your sort of or maybe first of all um what was the first sort of synth that you bought where did you first go with, with your synth purchases that you mentioned it's very strange i was in a band i mean i've been in a million bands but i was in a band at school and obviously prog rock was the big thing back when i was at school in the 70s and it, it in fact it's really funny because it was this band had kind of many facets on one day it would be a punk band with a couple of different members and then it would kind of morph into a kind of prog band uh i was never really in the prog band uh but then there was this kind of it, it, it the, the version i was in was a kind of santana rip-off band what's funny is that the guitarist was the kind of star of the band and he dictated everything and he's gone on to become quite a big uh us smooth jazz guitarist wow guy called christian standring so Obviously, I you know had no contact with him after we left school and stuff. But when I saw him on Facebook and stuff, and we kind of hooked up, I was like, you know, so you still in the old major sevenths and minor sevenths, because I mean, black black magic woman was it. But I remember that they so it was like we're going to do this gig, and it was a big fundraising gig, and we need a synthesizer, and I was like, well, I can't afford a synthesizer. I mean. Jesus. Anyway, they they were kind of expecting this kind of you know Emerson sound, multiple oscillators, all detuned. But I'd managed to rent uh, Roland SH-1000 from Anderton's in Guildford, which I then lugged back on the train. Uh, and it sounded great in rehearsals, but as is always the way at school, there's always a couple of wind-up merchants. And the, the, there was a little tuning thing in the back of it where you could kind of put your fingernail in and tune it. And just before the gig, somebody went in and retuned it for me. Oh, no. Like, I put it completely out of tune. So when it came to, it was sitting on a grand piano. So when I came to kind of playing this, what I thought was going to be an epic Lee sound, which through an SH-1000 was never going to be epic sounding anyway, uh, it was all out of tune. So I then had to kind of do an instant transpose in my head. But it was never, you know, it was kind of in between. <laughs> it never worked. So the SH-1000 was the first thing I used. And then eventually I did a big thing after uh, when I left school i went i did a road trip across america oh excellent uh, it was the kind of first thing i ever wanted to do i was kind of following this uh, the route of a book that i'd read a great book atrocious film called damnation alley uh oh. but i was trying to kind of follow this route and uh 
at the time, there were no shopping malls in the UK. I mean, they were kind of, you know, they just didn't exist. But in America, they were these kind of newfangled, kind of shiny new shopping malls. And in shopping malls were these music stores that had synthesizers. So I started in LA and I went, I basically punctuated every visit with a visit to the music store. That was the kind of, that became the kind of primary thing. What's the music store going to be like? Nice. So I started on an Arpax, and by the time I ran out of money and energy in Detroit, I started with an Arpax in LA, and by the time I got to Detroit, I was pretty okay on a 2600. <laughs> and then, of course, you come back to the UK, and since they're just so outlandishly expensive, I kind of had to revert to the Arpax. And at the same time, a mate of mine, in fact, it was dumb because I bought this Arpax, which I really like, but Roland in the UK had fallen on kind of really, they were distributed by a kind of Scandinavian distributor and there was a, they'd fallen on really hard times. And they were really just chopping out the System 100. So you had the 100, the 101 at the expander, there's two speakers, the sequencer, and there was a mixer. And a couple of my mates went and bought the 100, and I wish I'd bought the 100 because it was such an amazing-sounding instrument uh, for me. You know, the axe with the sliders and stuff, it was kind of a bit flaky, whereas the Roland felt substantial and it really did sound good. And, of course, it came with those kind of patch charts where you could make it sound like a tuba or a violin, whereas with the axe it was kind of like, kind of make it sound a little bit like Gary Newman. Well, a little bit, but not quite. So, yeah, I suppose it was the axe. But what really happened with me was when... So in the early 80s, I was one of the... I bought a Simmons SDS-5 drum kit. Nice. And I was kind of one of the first people to have one of those who wasn't kind of super pro. That was the delights of instant credit, wasn't it? You go into a store for a set of drumsticks and come out, oh, I've just bought a Simmons SDS-5 <laughs> and a PA and and all the debt associated with that. But um, for me, that was a huge, huge turning point because I got very adept at that. Our band sounded very professional. We kind of got signed as a result of, I mean, I hate to say it, but probably as a result of the gear. Ultimately, it went nowhere. But then what happened was, because I'd been obsessed with synths, and when I was in that band, any money I'd made, I'd bought other synths. I then started getting phone calls from people going, you would know how to program a drum machine to sound like a drummer. Yeah because we don't play everything at the same time when we play a fill or something, you know. Uh, so I started to get work from that. And then when MIDI really kind of kicked in, it was like my favourite phrase is actually my business partner's phrase because Chris, my business partner, was in the 80s. He was a tech for Wakeman, Emerson, Blow Monkeys, then Jericho. I mean, I, I looked at his career and was like, that's the life I want. Young man <laughs> travelling all over the world, first class. But he said he remembered getting a call from Keith Emerson saying, do you know anything about this M1D1 thing? And, of course, that was MIDI. And it was like, oh, you mean MIDI? <laughs> yeah, I know everything about that. He kind of blagged his way through it. But it was that transition in particular where artists really wanted to focus on playing. They didn't want to get bogged down in any of that techie nonsense. And there was money enough to kind of pay people to do that job. So it was like, right, I need all this stuff to happen live at the press of a button. Make that happen. 
Uh, and that marked a very big shift for me. I, I suddenly had a year where I'd done a lot of drum machine programming and quite a bit of synth programming. And it was like, geez, I've made more money out of this than I ever made out of playing. Mm, that's incredible. So that, was, that was the big switch. Yeah, because you would have been, I suppose, in those days, um, I, I, I interviewed CJ Bolland yesterday. I don't know if you know his work. He's like sort of techno producer. And um, yeah, we were talking about the days of having MIDI and CV and DinSync all together. So I, I suppose in those situations, they were also completely unaware of how to get everything to work together, were they? Yeah, it was a nightmare. I mean, it really was a nightmare. You had to be a bit of a kind of brain surgeon with the old CV stuff at the time. But there were, you know, there was, I suppose, the kind of generation just before me had kind of grown up on that. For me, it was that marrying the CV and the MIDI stuff. So you needed those interface boxes and you needed to know what pulses per quarter note stuff was kicking out at and the voltage hookup and all that kind of stuff. And it didn't take long. For me, the real there was one moment where I was working with a particular artist to put something out live to set up a live show effectively. And they needed all the program change stuff happening on a program change command from a, from a master keyboard. Mm. And, you know, they'd gone away. They'd left me for a couple of days and I kind of set up this various sounds that they'd specified and whatnot. And I just went, right. Okay. So song one, patch one press that button of course everything just kind of came up and it was like alchemy as far as they were concerned it was like right you're in you're hired (laughs) sort of like going back to like medieval times with a with an iphone or something isn't it it's like that level of like wow you can do how did you do that (laughs) yeah yeah no it was like what yeah how did you do that how did you get sysx out of a, a pedal like how did that happen a uh, lot of graft, a lot of manual reading, a lot of delving in at the back. God, the Sizek stuff was a nightmare. Yeah. The Roland stuff, particularly, because you had all the checksums at the end. It was a lot of sweating. In fact, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, had bought this kind of shack in France. And uh, we used to go over occasionally and just, you know, spend a month there. And She'd be on the roof, kind of tearing off the roof and hammering stuff. And I would literally be in the caravan reading manuals <laughs> <laughs> and doing my tax returns and all that kind of stuff. So it was like, yeah, you're coming out today to do any work? I am working. What do you mean? I'm dealing with Sizex. God, it's really important. Mm, but yeah. It's, I, it's I, a minefield. Yeah. For me, that you know, the change was kind of midi CCs and program change commands and stuff like that once then we started to get away from the kind of Sizzix stuff but I do remember having to reprogram because the KX88 was all Sizzix if I remember correctly and that was a right pain in the ass uh, and I remember having to do a couple of live gigs and kind of reprogramming on the fly and just thinking Jesus if this comes off it's going to be a miracle <laughs> but that must have been yeah. really empowering for the musicians who needed that technology back then to be able to quickly switch um, I guess, yeah, the, you know, a lot of synths didn't have presets uh, in the early days. So, yeah, that must have been quite a magical thing to have have control over the, the programs that are playing. It's what blows me away about this 8-voice is that, you know, I mean, this was Chick Careers, as I've said a million times, but when we bought it and it came over from L.A. in the flight case, you know, it's Chick Career World Tour 1978, and I was like, so you use this live? <laughs> And you'd have had a tech to set up the patches in between the numbers. I can't imagine that kind of level of... I've also spoken to some of the old school, you know, the old Genesis guys, where literally they're repairing shit before they go on stage. 
that that wasn't the level of tech I was at all. Mm. I was kind of I can make this stuff work. Obviously, the issues we generally ran into were voltage stability problems, particularly at festivals. You know, you do a big festival and the generators, and then you know, if you're running a sequence, it was like there's every possibility this is going to go down. And then you got into uninterruptible power supplies and stuff like that, anything to kind of mitigate the disaster. What sort of festivals did you work at? Where did you go to? God, I did, uh, God, mountains. Um, the ones I really loved, the, the, there was one I really loved, which was in Switzerland, Laysan Festival, which was kind of right up on a mountain. I think that became quite a big dance festival after a while, but it was kind of, you know, it was kind of, it was kind of Reading Rock, I suppose. Uh, in the time we were doing it and um ross kilder all those kind of places uh yeah it was all really i, I loved all what i really liked about those events was it was very seat of the pants it was a bit rock and roll <laughs> you flew in nine times out of ten you know your gear had been thrown off a plane particularly if you were using things like S1000s, some of those additional memory cards kind of come dislodged. So you got into this routine, you know, right, straight off the plane, get the gear, open the stuff up, make sure everything was seated properly, plumb it all in, right, kind of work side stage. You probably have a couple of hours before the band was due on stage, and then it was like literally go. The Laysan Festival was fascinating. I was doing a Debbie Harry tour there, and the tour manager had said that he was trying to cut corners and he said effectively you can't take the keyboards but you can take the rack but one of the keyboards we were using was a jd800 which had just come out and you'd you'd forward your gigs you'd call the promoters and you'd say i need a jd800 delivered to the side of the stage and the dx7 and whatnot and then you'd get there and stuff wouldn't be available so i basically ran around that festival just blagging gear and reprogramming it off of other artists <laughs> there's a brilliant moment where we were using this korg bx or cx3 uh, and obviously that hadn't turned up and i saw one at the side of the stage and i was like whose is that and they said oh it's dave stewart uh, who was doing the spiritual cowboys at the time i was like where is he where is he and they were like, oh, he's backstage so i kind of went running and i see him sat down kind of talking to someone else and skidding into the shot and kind of went i don't know who i am i'm working with this is there any chance oh, i'll put it back where it was is there any chance and he just kind of looked at me and then i looked across and he was being interviewed by that paul king guy for mtv and i was like oh <laughs> what was bizarre is after that tour i went to amsterdam and of course they were doing the on mtv they were doing the reruns of all the festival stuff and as i checked into the hotel uh into the room i saw me skidding into shot on the telly amazing <laughs> cameo appearance yeah, yeah it was like oh man it really was bad <laughs> but yeah it was things like that and the great thing about debbie was that half of the set was semi-sequenced uh with heart of glass and stuff like that with all the dugger duggers and the drum machine and then the other stuff was just out and out rock and roll so during that gig in order to get things working in between the rock and roll numbers i would just end up shouting the tracks out in the order that i thought they should be played to make my life easier <laughs> and she was just awesome because she just she just got it she just got it and was like yep yeah. and and i think you know because her heart was kind of rock and roll i think she enjoyed that seat of the pants side of things there were other times where it didn't go as well but yeah we did we did a blinding job that gig
Am I right in thinking that you were something to do with the Fat Boy MIDI controller? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that, that thing... comes from. Go on, sorry. No, no. I mean, that comes from the kind of Sizex nonsense. Because <laughs> that was a really, I think for me, that was an iconic piece of gear. Um, the first time I saw it, that's, that's amazing. Serial number man. one. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I kept that. I was showing that to somebody the other day. Uh, yeah, it was really fascinating how that came about because uh, so after touring in 1991 when the first gulf war hit artists were afraid to fly and tours just stopped i mean we were we went from being very busy to like there's nothing around it was which was pretty scary and then what happened was the recession kicked in so that's probably kind of late 91 early 92 and people couldn't afford the expensive ticket prices that were happening at that time you know you couldn't afford 100 quid to go and see madonna and things just kind of ground to a halt on the live circuit in fact we were drawing parallels with you know obviously what's going on now and what happened back then which i found really fascinating i was mm. really fortunate in the in the town where i lived there was a guy called julian colbeck who wrote these Keyfax books and they were literally a guide to every synth ever made and they were updated every four or five years wow and at the time uh, when all that recession kicked in he had just started on what was called Keyfax 4 and he needed a researcher he's a really great writer great raconteur great writer but again in fact he on the ABWH tour, which was a kind of yes incarnation. He was the other keyboard player on that. And then obviously, you know, that had all ground to a halt for him. So he kind of threw himself, but he also wrote for Sound on Sound. And I was kind of lucky in a way, because he did his backing and he was laid up in bed for, you know, a good few weeks. But obviously the deadlines were there, you know, the book print date was there and the review dates were there in order for publications in SOS. So he just kind of went, here's an E3. Tell me how it works. So I just kind of had this crib sheet, uh, you know, X voice polyphony, these filters, non-resonant, X part multi-timbral, et cetera, which I've done for a mountain of the synths. And then he would work from that and kind of put it into, you know, good colorful prose. And there was a moment where he had some song MIDI files to review for Sound on Sound. And they were Richard Clayderman song MIDI files. And we had a couple of sound canvases or sound canvases. Uh, and he kind of went, here you go, take these home, tell me what you think. Well, I went back like 24 hours later and just went, these are awful. This is like everything I hate about computers and music. Was it general, like general MIDI, just like it was, default? Yeah, and general shite. Um, <laughs> but we had this discussion and it was like, why is this lifeless? And why is this the way it is? And why do you dislike it? And the theory he had was that, you know, if you, is it down to the controller? If you give Clapton a shitty guitar, is it going to still sound like Clapton, even though it's a shitty guitar? And we were like, yep, yeah, absolutely in agreement. And because he'd finished the ABWH thing, he said, listen, as an experiment, what we should do is we should get some real top flight musos and give them the corresponding MIDI controllers. And we should record it as MIDI data and just see if it's got that vibe. So we did, and it did. Uh, and that spawned the very first software company I had, which was with him, Keyfax Software. And at the same, so we did several volumes like guitars, drums, all manner of stuff, style specific stuff. And you would essentially just import these MIDI grooves because don't forget, sample RAM was really expensive. Samplers were expensive. 
So these were effectively MIDI samples of somebody's playing, doing all the kind of complicated stuff that you couldn't really play. And particularly in terms of sensibility, you know, a saxophone solo played on a keyboard will never sound like a saxophone solo. But through a MIDI wind instrument, because of the voicing and the articulation of the instrument, it works. And then it was like, well, we could assign this to different sounds and we could adjust the tempo and we can edit individually note events. And this is really cool. And we kind of hit upon this idea, you know, we could sell these. Uh, and then the, then the argument was, well, so we, do we try and sell a lot at a low price or try and sell a few at a high price? And it was like, no, let's, sell, let's try and sell a lot at a low price. Blagged a bit of space on a MIDI um, music show and this stuff just sold. But one of the things I did was essentially just using controller 11 expression data to set up gate effects because obviously at the time you needed a noise gate with a drum machine to drive it to set the threshold and then you put your keyboard through it to get that kind of rhythmic gate effect. And it was mm. like, this is a much easier way. And now it sounds, you know, positively archaic. At the time it was kind of people were just loading these gate effects as a MIDI file and then playing their chords and stuff over the top, getting these kind of rhythmic templates and grinning from ear to ear. And it was like, wow, wow. And then that led on, I was helping a band Underworld who have been mates for a million years. And obviously that was full on techno. And I was like, you see, some of the GM sound engines were really good, but editing stuff to get it sounding really good was horrible you know it was the wallpaper and through a letterbox analogy <laughs> so i kind of hit upon this thing about using nrpns and creating the same kind of templates for filter sweeps and stuff so that you could just play your stuff over it and we did that as a volume software volume and that just went mental i mean that sold that platinum award sold shitloads of those and it was a discussion between me and Julian and where Julian just said, well, surely it's not rocket science to put it in a box with knobs on. And at the same time, my now business partner, Chris, who lived this amazing life touring the world, had quit the music industry to try and save his marriage, which didn't work. He'd gone into the motor trade for a while, done quite well at that, had decided to sell his share and wanted to get back into music. So he was saying to me, you know, is there anything I can help you with? I was like, yeah, yeah, please help me chop up MIDI data and stuff. Mm. We were doing a show and I just mentioned it to him, uh, this conversation to him. And he said, look, you know, I got a little bit of money. Do you mind if I run with this? And I was like, yeah, yeah. And then within three weeks we had a prototype and yeah, that became the fat boy. That was crazy, crazy. Amazing thing. It is, um, so it was 60, is it 16, 16 knobs, 16 pots? What's the setup of it? I think it was 14. Hang on, let me just open this up. Because there was nothing else like it around at the time, was there? There was nothing on the market that, that sort of did no. this. No, it was really fascinating. So there you go. There is serial number one. Wow. Yeah, 14. 14 wow. Uh, one was obviously a MIDI channel selector. There were a couple of really pivotal moments at the time the Sound Blaster cards, the AWE32 and 64, were selling at a rate of, in Europe, they were selling a quarter of a million a month. And we were like, okay, so that's the PC side covered. If we make it compatible with that, then we stand a chance of doing some, some you know, half decent volume. Uh, and then the other one was the GS and XG stuff, which was obviously all NRPNs. And we took, Chris and I took a the software stuff that me and Julian was doing was distributed by Steinberg Direct Services in Germany, and they were brilliant. Uh, and it was kind of run by Manfred Rurup, who was the other half of Steinberg. There was Charlie Steinberg and Manfred. 
So at one of the shows, I arranged to talk to Manfred and we took the prototype fat boy in and we said, look, you know, if you commit, would you be interested in committing to a hundred of these or something? We were basically trying to cover our asses because it was expensive to make uh, for us because you had to do them in batches of a thousand. So we were talking 45,000. So we were like, if we can get some of the key distributors to, you know, cover that, we'll take the risk on the others. And and also we wanted to gauge interest. Uh, And he was amazing because he took one look at it and he went, I'll take a hundred, but on one condition that you put another mode in because that's just CC only because we're just about to distribute this new piece of software called Rebirth. And if it works with that, there's a great synergy in terms of sales. That was the singularly most brilliant suggestion <laughs> that we heard because that's then what, because obviously then, you know, CCs took over from NRPNs and CISX and everything else. So it was like, thank you, Manfred. Uh, and yeah, we did well. Amazing. That's, yeah, I love those serendipitous sort of conversations and just, you can just say one thing and then it opens up a whole new world into something incredible happening. Yeah, Rebirth was amazing. That was like the first real impressive, incredibly impressive piece of music software to my mind growing up in the 90s. Yeah, sort of TB303, 808 and 909 somehow in your computer. <laughs> it was mind-blowing. I remember, so the guy who actually manufactured the Fat Boy was uh, John Price, Kenton Electronics. Mm-hmm. And Chris, he wasn't actually doing controllers at the time. He was doing MIDI retrofits. And I remember Chris had approached him and he had built the prototype for us and he came down and uh, he said, I don't really get why you're doing this. And we hooked it up to the sound canvas and then obviously Rebirth. And it was like, and immediately you could see he got it. Because tearing us away from that was like, you know, no, 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 give me another five minutes because it was squelching. I mean, we felt, I felt like I was in Underworld at the time or something similar. <laughs> it was amazing. It was an amazing moment. But it just, it was quite a hard sell as in the early days because when you went to certain distributors, I remember we were distributed by Arbiters at the time, and I was trying to persuade them to take 100 and... They were like, yeah, but, you know, it's 140 quid and it doesn't make a sound and, you know, people want a sound for 140 quid. And we were like, okay, so just take 50 and if they don't sell, then you can return them. And they sold just like that. So I think that proved a little bit to some of the distributors. Uh, And then obviously, you know, other companies come out with cheaper rival alternatives and it's like, yeah, we can't really compete with that. We always wanted to do a high-end one. Uh, and in fact, we've got a prototype somewhere with a screen and everything. Oh, cool. Uh, an Ethernet connecting up mixer port, uh, mixer sections and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, we never got that off the ground. It'd be really nice uh, to, to like, I'm thinking of like futuristic MIDI controllers here to have something that was, um, there was a Kickstarter uh, that came out a few years ago, which was like a sound recording kit that did all different kinds of sound recording, um, like... Um, yeah, it was like a field recording kit with a little spring reverb and lots of like sort of little little different things. It would be great to have a MIDI controller that was sort of, yeah, like odd interfacing that all sends MIDI. I don't really know what that what that might be, but yeah, it was an amazing, amazing piece of equipment. And I think it definitely changed changed the trajectory of like MIDI controllers for sure. Uh, I'm sure I've... We made... Go on. No, 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 sorry, come on, come on. I'm sure I've seen one in Fatboy Slim's studio when he's looking through his old studio. Yes. I'm sure there's, I've seen one there and, yeah, I mean, countless. <laughs> they must have been in, like, all the 
All the, uh... My brother-in-law was in uh, Norm's band, uh, Freak Power. Uh, and obviously, I did a few little bits and pieces with them. And uh, I said to Norm, is there any chance we can get kind of like a little bit of promo with like Fatboy Slim, Fatboy? And he just looked at me as if to say, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I see that picture occasionally. We still get emails from people saying, you know, mine still works. For, for me, one of the key things about it was I wanted to make it robust because stuff was starting to get cheaper and it wasn't really roadworthy and having spent, you know, life on the road, it was like, you know, this needs to stand up to the rigors of touring. And that's where John Price was amazing because, you know, all of his MIDI interfaces were built in metal boxes and, you know, whilst the, comp so basically he sourced all the components and then he assembled it at Kenton. And then we'd go up and go, right, we've got to get 500 of these in the back of a shitty old car. <laughs> And then get them back and shrink wrap them up and put all the manuals in and the power supplies in and stuff and yeah ship them out but it was a strange thing that it was a bit like being in a band that you know when there's no money it's like us against the world and then all of a sudden the money starts coming in and it's like oh yeah but it was my band no, oh, but hang on it's my pa oh but i wrote the songs and that's when the kind of friction occurred mm, mm. and chris and i just went you know what we want to do we had fairly fixed ideas of what we wanted to do the biggest mistake we did we made was that chris had said to me we should put in like a keyboard you know get a keyboard mechanism and put you know put the knobs on the keyboard mechanism and i was like no nah, no nah, everybody's got you know too many keyboards and then we went to frankfurt or nam a year later and it was just like oh yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> that was a mistake because every booth just had, you know, Eddie Roll or M Audio or Evolution controller keyboards. It was like, yeah, okay, we missed that one. Yeah, it's funny that, isn't it? I guess those are just little sort of, yeah, you can never tell, you know, you never know what's going to be popular in the future, do you? So it's really hard to make that call. Um, I do, it is quite funny seeing the, those old MIDI controllers, isn't it, that haven't got knobs and buttons on you go oh i remember that when it didn't have pads and faders look at that funny midi keyboard madness mad did that experience sort of lead you into the software realm what did where did you go from there kind of uh what happened was we were offered the opportunity to get it into places like PC World and Curry's and kind of, you know, all the electrical superstores, which is a whole brutal other experience because, you know, they are business personified, certainly not rock and roll. But what they insisted on was that there had to be a point of sales display where a customer could walk up to a unit and tweak it with something and play something and go, I have to have this. And at the same time I'd started, obviously the VST technology had just kind of started, which I was blown away by. But there was in, there was a company, I think it was Coblo, they had these kind of bright luminescent green software synths. I remember seeing them at NAM, and I think they were specifically tied to Pro Tools, which is kind of out of my league. But they sounded great. And I was like, this, this is the future. So we took on an intern, a coder, 
and basically asked him to do a JD800 in software form <laughs> at a time when it was so in its infancy. I mean, it might as well be, you know, can you recreate the Holy Grail or something? <laughs> uh, and he really struggled. Uh, and it became quite apparent that it just wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, he was an amazing guy and really, really cool. Does kind of mobile phone stuff now, uh, you know, on the chip. A very smart guy. Mm. But we kind of, again, you know, as is with most of our stuff, most of our good ideas come from when we're driving somewhere. And I was like, look, you know, it's clear that he's struggling with this. Why don't we... Also, the, the, the issue you have with places like Curry's and PC World is they may take a 1,000 off of you and you're thinking, yay, we're in the money. But if they don't sell, you're getting them all back at the end of the month. And I know that causes small companies huge amounts of grief because you think there's a difference between selling in and selling through. And if it doesn't sell through, it's coming back. Wow. And I was aware of how that had impacted on Steinberg at the time. And, you know, oh, I don't know. We were a bit kind of a little bit wayward and a bit anti-corporate, I suppose, at the time. So I was like, well, why don't we just kind of ditch that idea and start with something really simple? Uh, and I had done a load of sampling for a, a Steve Hackett Genesis Revisited album where the Mellotron guys had brought down a Mark II and I had sampled every note of every key to put it into an S1100 for Steve to use on this Genesis Revisited album. Nice. And as nice. part of the deal was I had all the dats and stuff. So I said to Chris, you know, why don't we just do like a virtual Mellotron, which was the most unhip thing you could possibly do at the time. <laughs> They were almost, you know, considered the Antichrist. And we were just like, well, let's do this as a learning curve because there's no kind of complex time-stretching stuff or pitch-shifting stuff. If you speed it up, it runs at a higher pitch and the tape runs out quicker. It would just be a really interesting stepping stone to doing something more complex. Uh, and that was what became the Mtron. Originally, we had no plans to put that out as a product, but we played it to some of the prog rock fraternity who had used original Mellotrons and cursed them because of their reliability issues. And they went, you should sell this, you know. And we just kind of went, yeah, all right. <laughs> and that was it. That was the beginning. Like, Yeah, it's a sort of a great piece of gear to uh, model, I guess, in software because the mechanism essentially could be programmed to do what it's doing and, and, and that coding doesn't need to be oiled and maintained and... You can probably drop your computer and it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a big learning curve for us because obviously when we launched it, they just blew out. I mean, we, we really weren't prepared for the level of sales that we got. And then there was this other thing that happened, which was support. We were like, so people were calling going, well, it doesn't work on my computer. And we were like, well, it works fine on mine. And then there was this moment where, you know, we had a fair few people going, it doesn't work. It doesn't work you guys suck. Uh, and actually it was Chris who said, listen, if we're going to do this and it seems to be a viable thing to do, we need to take it seriously. And in order to take it seriously, you need to get on top of support. Hmm. And that would, I think that moment was the real switch for us. Okay. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's do it properly. We'll try and do it properly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I did read on your website that you said you like to leave every customer with a smile on their face. It's really, I mean, when we first started, we were in league because we had the retail network already established through the Fat Boy and through the other software stuff. We were approached by a lot of young coders 
who wanted to get into coding an instrument or coding something musical, but they didn't really want, they a, had no idea about how to get into stores, which is, which, you know, was quite a challenge. We already had that kind of network there. Plus they didn't really want to get bogged down in support. They wanted to go off into railing or something like that, you know, build this thing. I don't know, somebody famous uses it and I can go off into railing for a month. So we started working with a couple of companies, uh, F expansion in the early days and own force and one of the criteria in fact before we decided to work together we we all had this kind of agreement that we write down why we wanted to do what we wanted to do and all right, everybody yeah. with the exception of me wrote that it makes people smile what we would do for work makes people smile i wrote to annoy <laughs> <laughs> Annoying when I read in particular? their, I was just being flippant. Uh, but when I read their replies, I was like, "There's no that, what better reason do you need to work with people?" And it felt very much like being in a band. You know, it was the early days of all of this stuff, and you could kind of take it whichever way you want. I had a very interesting conversation with Bob Mo. We'd flown Bob across to do the opening of a synth museum in the mid nineties. Oh, cool! Where was that? Uh, which. It was actually in Essex. It was the Museum of Synthesized Technology. Uh, and the guy who uh, started it, I think he was kind of in banking or something, made millions, and didn't know anybody in the industry. And he suddenly called us up, uh, myself and Julian, mainly Julian, and said, you know, would you do a video of the open day? And I don't know any musicians, so would you invite them to the opening day? Uh, the video's out there. Uh, you won't see it on YouTube because... Um, Julian used quite a lot of copyrighted music to highlight examples. <laughs> Obviously, pre the, the pre-internet days. So now every time it gets put up, it gets muted or removed. Mm. But there are some sites out there where you can see it. It was an amazing, amazing connection. But we'd flown Bob across, and um, I just saw it was the same time where we were starting the first software company, you know, Julian and myself. So I was kind of like, oh, we could do business in a different way, and like Mr. Naive. And uh, we could do it open and transparent and honest and it would all be great. Uh, and I sat and talked to Bob because what was bizarre is that, you know, in some cases people wouldn't talk to Bob because it was like, Bob, you know, don't go near Bob. Don't intrude on Bob's space. Whereas I was just an idiot and just was like, hello, Bob. I was the guy who recorded you talking about the Moog modular stuff downstairs. I was doing sound on my video. Mm -hmm. And uh, he told me about the way he had done business or business had been done on his behalf badly. So for me, when we started the GeForce side of things, I was like, I really want to try and take some of that and kind of inject it in. because it was a new industry in the same way that since we're a new industry when Bob was starting, you know, this idea that we could do things differently. We don't have to conform to the way business is done. One of the last things Bob did say to me, though, is that unfortunately business always outs. So be prepared. Mm. <laughs> But yeah, it was fascinating. Really interesting, you know, really fascinating period because people were just trying different things. Yeah, man. And yeah, it, you just sort of what what came to mind then was I know Look Mum Computer. He's I think he's about to open a museum of his own, isn't he? Um, that'll be ah, something quite special. That. Yeah, it's called like the Museum of Everything or something. Um, and he's got a phenomenal collection of gear. And I mean, he's like the shining beacon of gear restoration and of the, the sort of younger generation amazing guy yeah. uh yeah so he's gonna have his own synth museum oh that'll be fascinating this one didn't last that long i think 
look, the maintenance of this stuff is just, you know, in fact, what was it? What was fascinating is even on that open day, it was like one of the hottest days of the year, and it was an underground bunker. <laughs> uh, in fact, it's weird because when you looked at it from the top, it looked like the entrance to a swimming pool changing room, and then you went down these stairs, and it just opened out to this vast expanse. I mean, you know, five mode modulars, four or five ARP twenty five hundreds. I mean, everything you could imagine down there. Wow, um, it was stunning. But because it was so hot, I think the first thing to break down was the aircon. And then gradually all the gear started kind of breaking down. There was this guy, Bob Williams, who is analog solutions or systems. I always get the two mixed up. And Bob's a kind of legend, but he was he, his, his day was way more stressful than anybody else's because he was literally running around trying to fix stuff before we dragged the artist in front of it to say, you know, what iconic tracks they'd used this stuff on and kind of kept our fingers crossed that it would work for the video duration. That's so cool. But I think in the end, Martin probably, you know, the guy who started it, Martin Newcomb, I think he probably got to a point where it was like, look, you know, I'm not really making any money out of this and it's a bottomless pit. And maintaining this stuff, you know, has a tendency to be a bottomless pit. you got to love it. Definitely. Absolutely. I mean, I've found that for my own personal collection and I'm sure you have throughout the years. Things just, you switch something on one week and switch it on another week and it's it's not powering on... Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of respect to the people who can fix this stuff um, and who have the knowledge to to fix old stuff. I interviewed Andy Collins, who who fixes stuff for uh, Gary Newman and the Chemical Brothers in this podcast series, and that was like a fascinating insight to speak to someone who does that sort of unsung work behind the scenes. They're they're worth their weight in gold. We use a guy Kent Spong, and Kent is just a complete gent. In fact, we end up saying to him. He's too cheap, Ken. You're too cheap. <laughs> but I can take anything to him day or night, and he will. Uh, I mean, it, it's a bit like the Seven Bridges. There's this constant flow of stuff coming in and out of his place. But I have so much respect for people like that because I, I started to look at it a few years ago that effectively we're kind of custodians of this stuff. Once you get to the real high end stuff, CSA is, we've got this mad Chamberlain M4, there was only four ever made. And it's like, actually, we're just custodians of this for a period. And we have an obligation to keep this stuff alive. Uh, and sometimes that's utter madness. <laughs> but other times it's like, I think that's kind of hard. Some of the joy for me, it's like, you know, we can take something that's battered and bruised and we can give it to somebody and they can restore it to the point where it's like, this is a proper, proper instrument that I make a connection with now. Definitely. Um, and what are what are you a custodian of? Um, what sort of gear have you got that you feel like a responsibility to maintain? Certainly the Chamberlain stuff. We've got a lot of Chamberlain stuff. Uh, you know, these were all kind of handmade items. So they? they're very, very... Is that the sort of pre-Mellotron, the Chamberlain? Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, and I think, you know, in terms of since that we model, the backstory has to be as grabbing as the sound of the synth for us. And that's kind of... So the story with the Chamberlain Mellotron has kind of led us to do what we do with the M-Tron. You know, absolutely the OB stuff. I mean, even the Mini Monster with the Mini Moke, you know, Bob really didn't want that made to begin with. You know, he put his life and soul into the modular and it was engineers who were worried about their jobs going, we need to make something smaller and cheaper. So all of these backstories, you know, that we find really, even the string machine, I mean, we were asked to find a Selena for Kasabian, which we did. 
And I was like, Jesus, this is so heavy. And it just does this kind of three things. It's a bit of a one-trick pony or three-trick pony. And I started. And then at the same time, I was talking to Gordon Reed from Sound on Sound, and he explained that there were over 140 different string ensemble makes back in that period. Wow. And it was all started by a British guy, Ken Freeman. And that was it. You know, once we start immersing ourselves in that history, it's like, we have to do this. We have to do this because in software, it makes sense. And Kasabian was super grateful because they ended up taking out VSM on a Muse receptor instead of lugging around a very heavy and fragile Selena. So it's that backstory that is as almost as important as the instruments themselves. So yeah, we have mountains and mountains of stuff. I mean, obviously the eight voice, which was just on the software version of that was Chick Careers again. We got an obligation to maintain that and keep that in tip top condition. The CS80 we've got used to belong to Jeff Wayne was used on War of the Worlds, again, another obligation. Wow. But I think what's been really sad about the pandemic is, so we've got all of this stuff in a dedicated studio. And the idea is that artists can come in and come point to something and they're all plumbed into sub-mixers and then that sub-mixer goes into a 40-channel desk and they can be using it within seconds. That's fantastic. Assuming that it works. But what's happened with the pandemic is obviously all that work's been cancelled and we've ended up in a situation where I'm walking into the studio going... I'm worried about battery leakage mm. and thinking that hasn't been turned on for six months. So it becomes a bit of a worry. I guess that leads to your, the documentary that you recently made, Bright Sparks which was fascinating, yeah. an amazing piece of work. I really enjoyed it. I know a lot of um, people who did. Um, yeah, how did that start? When, when was the inception of that idea? Um, as a band, I Monster, who I'm huge fans of, uh, they did an album, Never Odd or Even, which is kind of the kind of retro album that I'd like to have done if I was talented enough. <laughs> and they've done patches for us and demos for us over the years. Um, they've done loads of stuff you know produced a human league album i mean they're just constantly there's two of them it's dean and jared and jared does a load of prog stuff uh, and, and the eye monster stuff and dean does uh, moon landings and fat white family and loads oh, of Centronic research, research council. Council. Yeah, yeah 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 which i love i love yeah stuff. me too i'm kind of in awe of those two guys and they basically came to us and said well, we've had this idea, we want to do this album dedicated to eight musical instrument pioneers, you know, and we want it to be authentic. Uh, is there any chance, like, we can borrow some of the gear to make it authentic? And we were like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, honestly, I was like, yep, yeah, we get to hang out with the cool kids. Uh, and they're way cooler than us. And uh, they were kind of coming down, swapping gear out, and we were, you know, like the 2600, and in fact, they've still got an octave cat of ours. And then at one point, because I've done these YouTube walk through tutorial things on instruments dean just said to me i don't suppose you'd fancy doing a little tutorial on a little film you know like a 20 minute thing on for youtube to support the album and i've said this a million times but i had years and years previously i'd taken the back of our mini moog off which was the mini moog that we used to model mini monster which is a very very early one mm -hmm. to take to nam to get bob to sign it 
and we were on the way to the airport and I suddenly realised I'd forgotten it and I was swearing in the back of the coach and Chris was like, you know, calm down. He'll be there at uh, Frankfurt in a couple of months. And he wasn't. Obviously, he had the brain tumour and, you know, we lost an utter legend and a, and a real gentleman as well. Uh, and uh, when Dean said that, I just thought, yeah, we need, you know, that was a real lost opportunity for us and we need to document as many people as possible. So they gave us the, the list of eight, which was kind of four Americans and four British. And I, I know Michelle Mokusa is Bob's daughter, you know, reasonably well and contacted her and I managed to get a friend of mine in America to go and interview Herb Deutsch, who kindly agreed to do it. And obviously Herb was there right at the beginning of the module. He was the kind of musical part of Bob's engineering. And yeah, it just kind of snowballed. I, I remember saying to Chris, you know, I don't care if this is the last thing I do in this industry, <laughs> I just have to do. Please, can I have a budget and please, can I have the time to do it? And Chris was amazing. He just went, I can see you need to do this. Uh, and then, yeah, it just snowballed from there. There was, a, there was a couple of moments where one was, I was interviewing Adrian Utley for the Minimoke stuff. And Aid had asked me, have you got the I Dream of Wires DVD? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've got the kind of cut, the, the normal version, not the deluxe version. I said, you know, a few people are saying the deluxe version's too too long. And he said, I think it's two days too short. <laughs> and I left there and thinking, right, Bright Sparks is going to be two hours. I'm going to do it and it'll be two hours. I had a mate who's like a TV commissioner and uh, producer and stuff. And he'd come around and he said, look, I can get this on Sky Arts, but the treatment has to be this. And you cannot deviate from that. And it's all that, you know, before the advert coming up next. And then after the adverts, previously we saw, and I was like, and actually what it did is it equated to six minutes worth of real information per quarter hour. <laughs> and I was just like, I'm not doing that. I can't do that because it felt really disingenuous to take somebody who in the last stages of their lives had sat down with us and told us their life story to cut that down to six minutes. It just felt rude. Mm. And I was like, no, I'm not doing that. And of course, since Britannia was a great lengthy documentary and I was like, I want to do that. And of course, my producer friend was like, oh, get you your first documentary, one in it on BBC Four. <laughs> <laughs> I met him. Yeah, I did meet him afterwards and he went, so how did it go then? And I was like, yeah, you were probably right. But I had to do it my way. No, I think doing it, absolutely doing it your way is the way to do it. You know, um, compromises, doing compromises is all well and good. But yeah, if you're, if you're able to keep the creative decisions down to you, then that's definitely for the better. Yeah, you see so many feature films that get bigged up and then you realise that they've just had compromises. I mean, the one that springs to mind out of the blue there is Chris Morris's film um, The Day Shall Come. Don't know if you saw that or you know Chris Morris's work. I love Chris Morris, yeah, but I haven't seen that. Exactly. Well, don't do it, really, is my advice, oh. because it seems to be, it's a film, because he did Four Lions, which was around yeah. mid-2000s, which was brilliant. But then his, yeah, his later film that came out about maybe five years ago, you can just see that there's compromises and there's people that have put money in and um, it's just got so little Chris Morris in it that you're like, no. shit, if he'd have just been independent, that would have been so much better. Um, so, yeah, I think that's the, a really great thing that you did to just go, I want to do it my way. I'm I want to give these people the respect that they that they deserve. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic documentary, man. Like the 
the the production values of it as well as the the sort of tone and the delivery is really fantastic it was pretty scary production wise i mean i didn't even we didn't even even have a lavalier mic when we started i was recording it on a zoom h4 <laughs> and the cameras we were using were pretty basic and then gradually i'd go to chris and go look you know i'm having to do so much post-production on the audio can i have a lavalier mic and he's like yes how much <laughs> uh, no i mean in fairness he was amazingly supportive and then you know the camera quality got raised towards the end i i really wanted to do some of the west coast guys in fact i'd contacted don buckler and he was ill at the time i think that was one of the big problems that we were running into is that uh some of these people were not well mm. and there was certainly one person adrian wagner with the wasp uh, he said you know I, i'm in a wheelchair and i don't really want this to be how people remember me and also he said every time i put my head above the parapet somebody takes a pop at me and you know, I'm old. Mm. Uh, and it, I was, oh, what he did was obviously put us in touch with Fred, who's been his mate for 30 years and worked at EDP. But what what happened was when we did the Fat Boy, Adrian called me and he said, you know that black and yellow livery that you do? Is that any in any way a homage to the Wasp? And I was like, absolutely. It was a conscious decision. And we had had this two-hour conversation on the phone, which was brilliant. <laughs> And he had told me a lot of things that kind of flew in the face of the history that existed out there. Uh, and he had made some claims that, you know, history had been kind of reinvented by a few people, not Chris Huggett. And I was I, I was like, now's the time. Now's the time for you to talk, Adrian. But, you know, you got to respect it when somebody says. And this, it was likewise with Don. He wasn't well and it was like, it didn't feel right. And also going to the West Coast would have been a kind of expense too far for us. Uh, but when we got the Alan Perlman thing, that was it. I was just like, in fact, I was trying to work out ways of doing it cost effectively from getting friends over there to go and interview. And it was Chris who said, we need to do this. You will never get this opportunity again. We need to do this. And before I knew it, he booked a couple of tickets to Boston and we were like knocking on this guy's door. It was like, wow. For yeah, me, that was but... a, his thing was a real epiphany for me. The ARP, is that the ARP guys? Yeah, I think the moment there's something about those two guys, like when the when the the camera um, cuts to them, there's such. Um, I almost had a tear in my eye the moment they were on screen. Those two guys, and they sort of allude to the fact that it didn't make them millionaires, even though they created this sort of absolutely legendary piece of equipment. And um, but yeah, my heart sort of bled listening to their story. And um, yeah, but amazing stories in, in the development and and, it's and very difficult. With Dennis, it was quite difficult with Dennis Collin. Dennis really wasn't well. Uh, he'd lost his wife kind of six months prior, and it was quite clear she was the kind of driving force behind the house and kind of kept him going. Mm. So he was really struggling, but he had a lot of... He was coughing constantly in between words, and you can see he doesn't look well. And I came back from that interview, and I started to cobble it together here, and I was like, I don't know whether... It just felt... It felt exploitative. Right. It really didn't feel right. And I sent it to Dean and I said, look, you know, how do you feel about this? I was kind of, I was really in two minds. You know, one was the expense that we'd gone to and the other one was like, it just doesn't feel right. And I put it into Isotopes RX and I cut out all of the ticks and the coughs. 
And that was like a revelation. All of a sudden, everything he said made sense. It was coherent. You could tell his mind was still really sharp and very, very smart guy. And then that made the kind of physical aspects a lot more easy because we're all going to get old and we're all going to age and we're all going to look like shit at some point. And I sent that to Dean and Dean went, oh, mate, I'm so relieved. And I was like, yeah, great. You and me both. Right. Okay. I can use that now. There were a few moments like that. Hmm. Like Alan a... was a... Sorry, yeah, go on. No, go on. No, Alan was just a real, real gent, and I've never been starstruck, but there was a moment where I was, where we were knocking on their door, and I suddenly... It wasn't starstruck. I suddenly became acutely aware that I'd had a couple of phone conversations with him, but he didn't know who I was. Why, why should he? And here we were knocking on the door of two 90-year-old people's home who didn't know us from Adam. You know, we were going to have to be on super best behaviour. But I did one thing in that that I'm always going to remember in that I made a mistake. I asked him about the company that was sold to a bigger company that he had, Mm -hmm. the little company he had being sold to a big conglomerate. And I'd got the names the wrong way around, and it was the best thing I could have done because what he did was, in correcting me, he then went into this big monologue and I'm just sat back nodding and it was like, this is just manna from heaven for me. In making that mistake, that's cool, man. Yeah, I'd recommend that to anybody, you know, as long as they know that you've got your kind of historical stuff in context and that you are genuinely interested, a little slip like that in correcting you should just lead them into this kind of big monologue. Perfect for me. Excellent. Yeah, I often, I mean, doing these podcasts, I often beat myself up when I've finished and I get off and go, oh, God, I didn't ask them about that. Oh, shit, I didn't ask them about that. Oh, you idiot. (laughs) But then there are also similar times where I've exactly that sort of things happened. A random random suggestion or idea has turned into a really beautiful part of their career or their life that perhaps wouldn't have happened exactly. Totally. I've I've recounted this a lot, but they asked us to stay for supper and we asked, you know, have you ever been to America? Uh, Sorry, the UK. And they said, I would say, yeah, we did in the 70s. It was very stuffy. And then they told us this story about how uh, they'd flown in from the US. They'd got they'd stayed in quite a posh hotel and they needed to eat, but they couldn't get into the restaurant because in those days you had to have the aperitif in the bar beforehand. But they had a young daughter (laughs) And they couldn't get into the bar. So it was like this kind of impenetrable wall of getting to eat. And we just kind of rolled our eyes and went, yeah, yeah, it sounds very British 70s stuffiness. What did you do? And Alan's wife said, I did what kept me alive as a child. We were like, what? And she said, I elbowed my way to the food. And we were like, what? And she said, three concentration camps, my dear. And then she told us her story. And we were utterly floored by it and I would that would never have happened had it not have been for a being invited to stay for supper it was a random you know it was just a random question Mm -hmm. Uh, and her story was utterly jaw-dropping uh Spielberg in fact we said can we get the cameras out again she was like actually it's been filmed by the Spielberg Shower Foundation I've watched that probably three times now Mm. and it's jaw-dropping utterly jaw-dropping Cool. If you can send me a link to it, I'll put it in the show notes so people can mm. um, can check it out. But yeah. Alan actually, he appears at some point, you know, later, later on in that whole interview. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's mind blowing. And there were so many parallels between 
so before they moved to this kind of apartment they had a big house and they had a basement and he would work in one half doing his engineering stuff and she would work in the other half doing her art and she's a great artist uh and i was like wow this kind of mirrors me and my wife you know i work upstairs in a separate part of the house and she works downstairs doing her art and i'm doing my stuff and i was like wow 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 Alan's wife was a keep fit fanatic. My wife's a keep fit fanatic. There were all these kind of things. I left there and I had to stop down the road and go for a little walk because I was like, I kind of felt like I grew up during that interview. Wow. Yeah, I guess I know I was talking to his daughter about it the other day on an interview and uh, she said, but they're the best meetings when you learn something about yourself from meeting somebody that you really don't know. And I was like, that's the perfect description for that interview. Mm. That's incredible, man. I'm so glad that you, you got to have that experience. And um, yeah, it must be nice for those guys as well to feel revered and um, feel loved by everybody. Because, yeah, the things they've, they've created. Go on. I, I've always drawn this analogy between, you know, we know it from our engineers in that they're very shy, kind of quiet considered people and they focus on this because I need to do that and it's almost to the exclusion of everything else because I just need to do that and I've always drawn the analogy between great engineers and great artists they're not interested in the money they just you know in Alan's case I need to make an oscillator that stays in tune I'm going to do that and they're driven in the same way that any musician or artist is and they're also very you know when you meet a lot of high-end musos they may be slightly socially deficient now in the old days we'd look at that as genius and perhaps it's a degree of ocd or asperger's or something you know being on the spectrum hmm. now we would look at it and maybe consider that but i've always seen this analogy and that was absolutely reinforced for that you know they were driven to do these things at a time when there was no real industry per se they were punts i'm gonna do this and the thread that ran through the entire documentary was generally that when the investors and the money men get involved, that's when things have a tendency to... And Dean says that right at the beginning, doesn't he? He said, it's, you know, he was reading... Um, what's the book? Oh, God, I've got it up there. Oh, Analog Days. Mm -hmm. He drew the parallel between what happened to a load of those engineers and creators and what happens to them as a band. And it was amazing that that really did come to the fore. I didn't set out to do that, but actually read between the lines. Was it you who said good things come out of a good heart that's obsessed? Was it you that quoted that line the other day? I quoted it on YouTube, yeah, but uh, Rick Smith said it. Now, for me, that single phrase is what it's all about. When Rick said that, I, you know, I've known them for God knows how many years, and they're really, really fascinating characters. Yeah. They force me to think about things differently every time I go up there and do bits and pieces. And that was a very impromptu interview with Rick, but I really wanted him to talk about the 2600 and rares. But when he came out with that line, I was like, I want this at the beginning, in the middle, <laughs> and at the end. <laughs> It 
It is a cracker, yeah. It definitely jumped out at me. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'm a huge Underworld fan myself, like, huge fan of their work. What sort of what sort of stuff have you done with them? Uh, basically anything they ask. Uh, so when I did that Debbie Harry tour that I talked about, Carl was the guitarist. He was kind of there. You know, Chris Stein was on the tour, but he was struggling. You see, it's, it's kind of a tour that doesn't really exist because it was... Deborah Harry. It wasn't Blondie and it wasn't Debbie Harry. It was Deborah Harry. And, and it was really to promote the best of Deborah Harry. And I think looking back on it, they had a really terrible management situation where I think the guy was on like, you know, 100% in perpetuity or whatever. Right. And I think this might have been a little bit of a side tour to kind of make some money. Uh, but Carl was the guitarist and Carl was amazing. Uh, him and I just got on from day one. We're both born on May the 10th different years but we just there was something about i just gravitated to him and i hope vice versa i was probably a pain in the ass in his eyes <laughs> uh and during that tour because all my mates were involved in microgroove and freak power and whatnot and i was a funk drummer effectively when we talked about dance music i was thinking about it from that aspect and then he was talking about this other project that he has with his other partner uh, with his partner, which was obviously Rick. And then at one point he said, you know, we should get together and have a jam. And I went to Nomis Studios and walked in. I was really anti Fort of the Floor techno because from our aspect, it was anti-muso. And everyone at that time wanted a DJ. They didn't want any bands playing. So it was like, well, this is kind of putting me and my friends out of work. So I walked into that rehearsal room and heard Four of the Floor and just went, nah, it's not for me. <laughs> and walked out. And then I think Darren joined about the same time. Uh, and it just went mental. Uh, but we'd always stayed in touch and basically whatever they ask i mean it's silly little things like using an rpns to set a pitch bend range on carl's guitar midi guitar to plus 12 so that he can get those proper string trills and bends mm. on each of the notes it's things like that it's like how can i do this right i'll come down to the studio and show you how to do it i mean anything anything yeah, rick can you make me a sound for this send it off uh, it needs to be a little bit more orange Right, can we have a discussion about what you mean by orange? Uh, so, yeah, they've been massively influential. And in fact, at the very, very first MIDI music show that I did with the first software company, they came to... This was just after Dub No Bass, and I'd lent them a couple of synths, including Bass Station Serial Number 1. And they wow. brought that synth back to me at the show. And we went for a coffee and had a good, good chinwag. And they left and a guy who was the deputy editor of Future Publishing immediately came up and said, excuse me, was that Underworld you were with? Yes, why? Is there any chance you can get us an interview? Well, they weren't doing interviews at the time. They just refused to do them. Nice. And I was like, no, no, they're not doing that. But I called them and said, he said, is there any way you could set it up? And uh, I said, look, I'll give it a go. But the chances are the answer is just going to be no. Uh, and I called them and they said, yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it, but we'll do it with you come down to the studio, spend a day doing some noodling and some fixing and some sound stuff, and then we'll just do the interview. So I spent a day down there, and that was the first interview they did that was published in Future Music. And as a result, Future Music then asked me to do other writing for them, which kind of kept me alive when I was trying to get the software company off the ground. That's so cool, man. 
So there's all those weird little interconnected. <laughs> I had a moment when that Dubno Bass 20th anniversary gig happened at Royal Festival Hall. They said, you know, do you want to do you want to come along? I was like, yeah, 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 please. Can I bring Chris? Yeah, yeah, but you know, tickets are tight and. Uh, and I said to Chris, you're driving because I'm getting pissed in the after show afterwards because <laughs> it's going to be quite an emotional moment for me because we've all had kids who've grown up in that period. We've all had, you know, interesting careers and we've all faced trials and tribulations. And I said, there's every chance when that fires up, you know, I'm going to have a bit of a man blub like I did at the Olympics. <laughs> and uh, Chris was kind of taking the piss and uh, it, it, it did happen. And then... Uh, I looked around and I, we were stood next to Brian Eno and Danny Boyle. And I was like, man, the teenage me just would never have thought this possible. And then at the after show, I did. I said to Rick, I got to confess, Rick, I did have a little bit of a man blood there. And he said, so did I. He wow. said, I was playing live. And he said, I wrote River of Bass about my wife, Tracy, and how she had really supported me through the difficult years. He said, and all of a sudden it came flooding back to me and a little teardrop dropped on that desk and I was like oh I love you <laughs> was that like I mean sometimes you get like out of body experiences in life don't you did you sort of feel that Stood I was very I was kind of yeah it was definitely that we were we were kind of fortunate because actually the sound when they first kicked off they'd been sound checking for like three hours they changed the desk they'd done all manner of stuff uh, in fact, that very desk I now have in my studio because they gave it to me. Oh, nice. uh, but they were very, very... Cons- I mean, Rick is an absolute perfectionist. I've seen him, like, beating him. He gives, I mean, you know, football a parlance. He'll give a 1,000%. And I'm like, dude, everything you do is great. <laughs> Don't beat yourself up over it. I mean, the Olympic thing was just immense task for him, you know, doing the dub. I mean, he, he whatever he does, he absolutely commits to. But what had happened was the very the first couple of numbers just didn't sound right, which was great for me because it stopped me from having the full-on man blub. Mm. Uh, he was quite pissed off about it. But, I mean, I've seen him pouring over backing vocals and just going, wrong, wrong, wrong. And I'm like, it sounds great. He like like Phil Spector style. Amazing. Uh, he, he he does blow me away because he always looks at things from a very, very different perspective to me. And that whole tomato thing, I was very fascinated by that, you know, when they had the graphics and design company. Yeah, that was a really mystical website. I do always remember going to their website and being like, is this actually the right underworld? Because it was so like diverse and different from other bands. They had an amazing place up in Lexington Street. It was a huge facility. Uh, in Soho. I mean, this is like right at the height of the kind of Britpop underworld thing. Uh, and they had like a CD-ROM manufacturer, quiet rooms. I mean, this is right in the heart of London, you know, and then Tomato, the graphics design. But I mean, honestly, you couldn't go to the cinema without seeing the kind of all those words shooting out at you, which was so unders and Tomato at the time. Mm-hmm. It was amazing. It was really, it was quite something very, I mean, they're just amazing guys. They are, yeah. I- I just want to quickly ask you, is there any truth in the fact, because it didn't, oh, I think, didn't Carl Hyde have a band and and, it, and the name was like a signature or a sign or something? Yeah, they both did. Uh, so that was Fruer. Oh, was that Fruer? Right. Okay. Yeah, which was the squiggle, which was funny because when he was on the Debbie Harry thing, we used to have this little wind up joke of trying to find a really obscure track that some member of the band had done and use that to the walking on music. 
<laughs> and we kind of went through every member of the band and they were like, oh, you wind up wankers. And then we found Duke Duke. And I'd never heard it before. I didn't know who Fruer was or anything. What was fascinating was years later, because I helped Carl set up his live band with Gaz. Um, it, Carl, Carl called me and said, you know, I've done this solo album or I'm doing this solo album, but I really want to take it out on the road. And I want it to be a band, a real band. Uh, and we went through loads of iterations of kind of what he needed. Did he need a drummer? You know, was this? Oh, I might have that covered. And then eventually he said to me, you know, I think what I need is two key, two really good keyboard players, kind of one of them a synth head. And then I need a kind of bass player, play, bass player tech guy. And obviously I just, bass player tech guy, that's Gaz. And Gaz being Welsh and Unders meeting at the uni in Wales and Rick being Welsh. And I was just like, this could really, and Gaz just being Gaz and up and happy. And you couldn't fail to smile when you're around Gaz. And I was like, this could work really well. Uh, and I took Gaz up to the studio, but I said to Carl, you know, if it's not right, just, you know, you know me, just tip me the wink and we'll leave. Well, they just got on like a house on fire, absolute house on fire. But the point of that story is, is that obviously I went to a few of the shows, including the very last one, which was Union Chapel, and the set was split. It was kind of one half Carl's solo album, and then the second half, their reinterpretation of Underworld songs, of which one was Doot Doot. Well, I was out the side having a sneaky ciggy with an old raver bloke, and he heard that, and he just went, oh, man, I've waited 35 years for this, and was just in there. About an eight ball. They were the two kind of tracks that just sent the audience wild. Uh, yeah, it is a phenomenal track, dude, too. It's, there's something about that. I, you know, you get the hairs on the, the back of your neck standing up. Even now, it's just an incredible song. Um, and, uh, yeah, I guess the... To follow that, I just didn't, wasn't like, anyway, no, we're going probably a bit too much into Underworld here. This is not an Underworld interview. I'll say anything you want about it. <laughs> it was just about the, um, the Prince, whether Prince had nicked the idea of using a sign off Carl, because wasn't Carl like a, a, a guitarist for Prince? Yeah, point? he did an album at Paisley Park for, oh, the singer out of Berlin, Terry Nunn. And he met, I know he met Prince there. In fact, that was kind of weird because that's what led to the Debbie thing. I think, if I'm correcting this, and I'm pretty sure I am, he was he done that album. He was producing that album, I think, and then he was on his way home in at the airport in New York, and he bumped into Jeff Dogmore, this drummer, and Jeff basically said, "Kind of what you're doing next week." <laughs> and Carl was like, "Well, nothing, because you know, there's nothing going on," and. Jeff said, well, I'm MD in this Debbie Harry tour. Do you fancy? And Carl was amazing on that. I mean, during rehearsals, you know, everything had got on great. And then, I'm not kidding you, the first live gig was a kind of warm-up gig at Warwick University, if I remember correctly. And, you know, the lights go on. And I have to say, I was kind of expecting a bit of a cabaret type thing, even though Debbie was great. I thought, oh, you know, the worst thing that could happen is this is trotting out all the old hits in a kind of banal way. Anyway, mm. from the second the lights went on, Carl turned into Carl Hyde in running across the stage on the riser, just being what we know as Carl. And that changed everything. It changed the dynamic of the band because all of a sudden they started feeding off of each other. 
and there was a proper performance going on. And he never let up throughout that tour. He was as energetic as he is all these years later. I mean, it still blows. That was the last gig I ever went to before lockdown was the uh, Wembley Arena gig. And, you know, he's, he's pushing a certain age. And I was like, dude, he still looks good. He's still got the same kind of energy. All right, might need to take a couple of days more to recover after a tour. But yeah, phenomenal. He is, yeah. They're both amazing. They're both fantastic artists, um, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's worth going over a little bit of... We didn't really... In terms of the software that you make for GeForce and the things that you have available, um, yeah, how do you go about... So you've sort of modelled modeled some classic synths uh yeah how do you go about that process how do you go about sort of choosing a a model to something that you want to recreate and then how do you go into actually making that happen initially i I mean like i said earlier a lot of it does come from the backstories we'll get a little bit obsessive about a story behind a certain instrument or a certain genre of instruments and it'll be like we could do this or maybe we could do this. Let's try and do this. Uh, and then, I mean, I've always got... In fact, again, that's another great thing about working with Rick and Carl is that a lot of times I'll be up there and they'll need something. And it'll be like, but that does, kind of doesn't exist. And I'll come back to Chris and go, you know what we could have really done with today is... <clears throat> and Chris will do... Well, up until recently, Chris will do, you know, back up a fag packet arithmetics and kind of go, yeah, all right, that might work. And then if it kind of resonates with us, it has to resonate with the programmer, the engineer, because it's a really, really lengthy job. I mean, OB was three years in the making and lots of rewrites. Uh, Funny enough, Chris and I were doing a Zoom this morning where we were going through a lot of the old graphics and how that's evolved. I think we're going to put some up on the some of the social media stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, like the iterations. Yeah. Development of it. Yeah, and actually what that is, is, you know, because I focus on everything from a kind of sonic perspective, I think people sometimes forget that, and because I'm the front man, out of necessity because I play, but I think sometimes people forget what goes on in other parts of the organisation, in the, you know, the graphics and the workflow and all the effort that goes into that. And I said to Chris this morning, you know, it'd be really interesting to put things up because, you know, we don't, we have a very anti what we refer to as shovelware policy. You know, we don't put, hey, it's evident in the, in that we don't put stuff out constantly. Mm. We pick and we try and really craft. And part of that craft is, you know, immersing yourself in the historical aspects of it, really understanding. And that instrument has got to resonate not only with me, but also the engineer, because he's just going to spend forever doing it and then when it's released he's going to spend forever doing fixes and updates and all sorts of stuff so the engineer has to be as committed as us in terms of uh physical work it is measuring measuring scoping 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 measuring and then it will come to me in an embryonic form and i'll a b it against the originals and go nah not right or yeah wow well done you know uh but it's really just refining and refining and refining until but it's a bit like a piece of music in it we're always like yeah it's not finished yet Mm -hmm. but it comes a point where you're like actually it is (laughs) it kind of is we should stop now i think that's the thing we should stop now 
definitely. Yeah, you see a lot of people asking that on forums, like, how do I know when my music's finished? And it's like, you can't, no one can really tell you when that's done. You just have to sort of feel it. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's very strange in the coding world. Uh, you know, again, like I said, with engineers and that kind of mindset, I just need to do this. You know, we've been very, very lucky with some of with with actually the vast majority of our engineers. You know, they're very dedicated and they just want to do. And that's one of the reasons why we don't put stuff out willy nilly is that it's like you it needs to evolve. You need to hone we all need to get on the same page as it were you can approach it from that aspect he's approaching it from the graphics and i'm approaching it from the sound aspect the sonic aspect but all of those things have got to dovetail correctly before we go oh oh yeah we might really have something here Yeah, I have a, a friend of mine, Jason Hotchkiss, who makes products um, for 64 pixels. So he did like a C- MIDI CV converter, an arpeggiator, MIDI strum controller. And um, yeah, I love the way that he designs his stuff because he is coming from a programming point of view, mathematical, logical mindset. But he's also coming from like a musical, a musical point of view as well. So um, there'll be features that he's built into his stuff that I sort of email him about and go, oh, I wish it would do this. And he'll go, oh, yeah, it does do that. You've got to go into this menu. And, um, yeah, I think that's great when you have a, a balance of someone who is a good programmer as well as having, like, musical applications at heart, you know, like that's the fundamental thing. Yeah. I learned that years ago. I was asked to do some consultancy with an Italian keyboard company. And I'm not kidding you. There was a corridor down the middle of the building and the creatives were on that side and the engineering were on the other side. And never the twain met. Really and the boss man called me and he said, we, we really need to kind of marry these two departments because the engineers will come up with something amazing, but in order to turn it on, you've got to stand on one leg and put your finger in an electrical socket and hit three switches at the same time and have a key held down, whereas the creatives are kind of more emotionally led. Uh, and that was a fascinating experience. Ultimately, I failed. I went back to him and I said, I, can't, I don't think this is going to happen. I mean, I spent two weeks there and it was just like, I don't, I don't know whether this, I can make this happen without the help of cocaine and hookers. <laughs> <laughs> in the field, in the corridor, to fill the corridor yeah, with yeah, all yeah, that yeah. stuff. Hey, this would be amazing. This would be fantastic. Yeah, let's do this. Nice shirt. <laughs> Brilliant, man. Yeah, well, I know your, your, you know, the stuff that you, that you create as G-Force is really well regarded. Um, really well respected in the industry we care i think that's the key we care I, what we found over the years is whenever we do anything for money it always turns to shit. it's a bit like the bright spark bright sparks thing it's like if you do anything that's motivated by money you can guarantee it turns to shit i totally agree with that philosophy i think a lot of artists do or creative <laughs> do you know there comes there's, there's moments where you think yeah but i could just i deserve a little bit more and then you chase that and it's just like nope that was a waste of time and we all came out somewhat scarred from that experience <laughs> yeah. let's not do that again i think that's what again getting back to unders i think that's one of the things that i really loved about them in the early days because they'd been through the Freer days they'd done underworld mark one I. I can't remember whether it was unders mark one or Freer, but they had done a 
an American tour supporting the Eurythmics doing the kind of enormous dome stadiums. But it transpired they'd come back hugely in debt. They were they were effectively bankrupt. Right, wow. And that's why Carl started going out as a session musician, and that's how Rick ended up starting Tomato to do adverts for TV and stuff like this. And we had a very similar kind of thing at the beginning with us where, you know, we were shafted effectively, and we had a choice. We were either like, we stop and go bankrupt, or we come to some deal where we pay people back over a period of time. And I, I was so lucky that Rick had spoken to me about their experience because he did the latter. He said, I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to pay these people back. But what he also said to me was that every single one of those people who supported me during that lean period and helped me when I was at my lowest ebb are people that I surround myself with now because I know they've got my interest at heart and I know I can trust them. Definitely. And we went through exactly the same, a very, very similar experience. And it was amazing being able to kind of go down and talk to him about it. In fact, Chris was going to quit. Uh, and I said, look, you know, what happened wasn't our fault. I would accept it. If it was our fault, I'd shake your hand and say goodbye. But I'll tell you what I really want to do. I want to take you down to Romford and I want you to talk to Rick. And they spent four hours in the studio and, and Chris came out and went, let's do this. Nice. But it was also around the time of the kind of no brand, Naomi Klein, no brand thing. And obviously the Radiohead thing. And it's one of the reasons why they never signed a record deal in the early days. It was a gentleman's agreement and that should be enough. So we've always tried to kind of keep that spirit alive. Just do what you do, do it to the best of your ability. And hopefully somehow that'll translate into people looking at you going, they care, they give a shit. I think, no, I think that's a very, very, very good philosophy. Um, especially like, like you said about having your, having every customer with a smile on their face, um, it's it's nice to get amazing feedback from people and know that they're enjoying your stuff. It doesn't always work out that way. It doesn't Actually, always. what happens is that sometimes some people who have been felt disgruntled when we've actually taken the time, I think what happens right now is that people are so used to kind of not being able to talk to these kind of monolithic corporations that when they find that, oh, I've got a reply from a support oh and it's him or it's the guy i mean because you know we're tiny as a company that they become really surprised and then that sparks a dialogue and then before you know it they're kind of your greatest ally so it's very easy to kind of turn those negatives into a positive if you care enough i think absolutely i mean what springs to mind is something that happened with me a few weeks ago one of my max for live devices and a customer who is sort of um quite relentlessly emailing me like a lot and saying, can you get back to me? Every every email said ASAP, ASAP. So I was like, right, I've got to deal with this guy's problem. No one else has had this problem at all before. And um, he sort of helped me realise that there was a, a genuinely a bug with, with his computer and the software I was using. But he ended the thread by saying, you've got a mid-era fan for life here because I'd helped him through it. And I was like, wow, yeah. man, that's like, that's such an amazing, amazingly gratifying thing to hear. It's totally, um, totally. I mean, Chris, Chris had a philosophy from when we kind of decided on that support, that support moment. He said, you know, the mark of a good company isn't when things are going really well, because that's easy. The mark of a company is how they react to issues. Hmm. And I remember we saw something that Propellerheads did years ago. I can't even remember what the issue was. And I've got, you know, tons of respect for all of those guys. But Ernst, the CEO of Propellerheads, just put a 
post out there saying, I'm sorry, we fucked up. And I was like, wow, it's honest. It's honest. Look, we're all human. We're all fallible. We all fuck up. Some of us more numbs. But it's like, admit it. Just be man enough to admit it. And then and then try and put it right. Exactly. Yeah. Because you, you, you sort of you sort of maintain a level of respect when you hold your hands up and say you've made a mistake rather than, you know, as some people or companies will do, just pass the buck or just never actually admit that they made a mistake. I think it's got a human... You get, you, you get human connection with, with those situations. I'm grimacing because I've had my gas stolen. My gas provider has been stolen on three occasions by the same company. And I know what it is. It's somebody who's got the same address as me, but a different postcode. And he's obviously trying to get it on SSE. I'm on OVO. But the process to try and rectify that was bad enough once. But we're now on the third occasion. I know I'm going to have to set aside, you know, a day to get through the impenetrable answer phone and phone system and try and relay my message in a calm and succinct way where somebody understands and rectifies it. It's just, I think people have become so used to that now. Mm. And it does, it frustrates you from the off. Definitely. I know how long this is going to take. I've got other shit I need to be doing. Exactly. There was. I was gonna. I'm. I'm sort of set up to interview John Grant at some point. But the day that I was due to interview him, I had exactly what you're saying about sort of six hours on the phone waiting to speak to the like the energy company. And I'm so glad the interview got cancelled that day because I'd have just been in like the <laughs> shittest mood ever. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Why did you do? <laughs> cool. Well. Um, it's been great to speak to you, Dave. Um, I really appreciate um, you spending time uh, talking about this stuff. And you do also appear on Sonic State fairly regularly. Rand- well, randomly, I, yeah. I mean, obviously, I, I did it for, I did it for many, many, many years. I do. I, look, I lo- like I said before, I love Nick and the guys. When Nick started it, he said it'll be a bit like kind of breaking up the week, like going down the pub with a couple of mates. And I was like, yes, that sounds like my kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think once we got past kind of seven years or five years, I was like, I don't really have a load to say about everything. Uh, so I kind of pick pick weeks where I can contribute something, knowing that what I contribute is relatively uh, sane. But yeah, no, it's I love, love hanging out with them. Uh, I just think Nick's done an amazing job over the years. I mean, absolutely, it's like he keeps that thing vibrant. I've had people that you know come up to me and go, "You're the ah." Well, actually, before it was kind of you know video, I'd be at Nam or somewhere like that, and somebody took I know that voice. <laughs> I listen to you guys every week, and it's just like wow, wow, wow. Even now, I get emails from people going, "Yeah, yeah, I love it when you're on. I love it when so and so's on. I love it when this is on." So yeah, he's kept that vibrant. Which is no tool. It's no small task, really. It isn't, no. And I think I was probably in that list of people who'd emailed you a few years ago, saying, "Oh, I saw you on Sonic State. Do you want to speak to me and do my podcast?" <laughs> what years ago? Yeah, I don't know. When did we speak about it? I don't know. Was it a couple of years ago? I I think I asked you ages ago. I can't remember. But um, yeah, yeah, it's a great show. It is a great show, and um, I think Nick does a tremendous job. And, um, yeah, your insights are always, you know, really valuable, I think, for people. I like to go on when there's somebody learned on there, like Rich Hilton, because that allows me to be a little bit irreverent and 
take the mick a bit. Ty's also good. Ty knows his shit, but he's also Mr. Rant. I mean, they're all great. I love Mark. Love, I mean, Gaz. Obviously, Gaz is Gaz, and they're all just really. Again, it's like the teenage me. What really on a show with the guy from Chic and the guy who did all the tech for Duran Duran and all this kind of stuff? It's like wow, okay, and and Nick who had that big hit and yeah, amazing, amazing. It is great, man. Very. And what's um in terms of GeForce? Have you have you got anything that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, can't talk about it. Okay, that's, uh, that's another reason why I don't go on sort of talk that often because there's there's so much that I'm working on that I can't talk about that I can't. It feels a little bit wanky for me to go on there and go can't talk about that, can't talk about that. Hmm. Uh, but that's fine. I, I think that it's it's important to appreciate what people have done already, and not pressure anybody into making more stuff for the sake of it. I, I do prefer to. Yeah, I try not we to. We normally have. Like we normally have like three or four things on simmer and sometimes something might take a little bit of a back burner because we might have run into an impasse and we're kind of like, how do we solve that? And then something else might come to the fore during that period. Uh, what I am working on now, obviously I can't say, but I've been, I spent two years on it myself and then I handed it over to somebody else and he spent probably the best part of three years and after OBE, they kept it from me until OBE was complete and out, and then they went right. You need to get back into this, <laughs> and that was, it was a very big switch of mindset. But it was really exciting because having not revisited it for so long, to see what everybody else has brought to the equation and then start using it, I was like, "Yep, yeah, okay, I'm back in the right frame of mind for this now." Cool. That sounds very, very interesting. Very mysterious. Hopefully this year. Hopefully later this year. Excellent. Cool. Well, um, yeah, we'll keep a lookout for that for sure. Marvellous. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Dave. It's been really good to speak to you. I really appreciate the work you do. I know a lot of people love what you do. And, yeah, the documentary was incredible. I think it's... Did you find that it was... Did you have a sense of gratification having finished that, get it out there? How did it feel to have the the comments coming in? When we first... We first put it out as a kind of pay for download thing. But we did a big kind of launch night at the local hotel where we had a private cinema and we invited a load of people and names and stuff. I was absolutely shitting myself. <laughs> I really was. I mean, I think I was outside smoking more than I was in there. And I knew it was long and I was really worried about people getting through it and kind of you know, still maintaining a level of interest in one hit. Uh, but afterwards, it was astonishing. And then the idea, I mean, really, the idea to put it out for free was because during lockdown, so we're really lucky with the studio, with the main studio. It's right on the edge of some amazing countryside. And I had invited, you know, I'd had calls and emails from people who were really quite struggling. And particularly musos who had found their work had been decimated and really didn't know what the future held. Mm. Uh, so I, in the rare moments between lockdown, I would invite people over there and we would just go for walks. And the general consensus was that, you know, somehow social media or whatever the culprit is, uh, has kind of conspired to put everyone in their own echo chambers where they're only hearing their own opinion reinforced. And there were people I walked with who I thought, well, you've got everything sussed. It's all right for you. And then when they started talking, it was like, well, I misjudged that. And I'm sure there was 
plenty of people who thought that about me. And when you listen, you take the time to listen to somebody's story in the same way with Bright Sparks, it's like you just learn, like Dina Perlman said, you learn more about yourself in a way. And I remember saying to Chris, I just want to put Bright Sparks out there because if we're going to get out of this, you know, right at the beginning of the pandemic, I was talking to Carl, for example, who said, do we want to go back to the old ways? No, there's got to be a better way of doing things, blah, blah, blah. And obviously, you know, that's still not really transpired. Uh, but a lot of people have been thinking along those lines. A lot of artists I knew were really asking themselves whether their work was in some way self-absorbed and narcissistic and perhaps they'd be better off stopping what they're doing and going and do something for the common good and we had it in our neighborhood you know we're trying to help the old folks and do food deliveries and stuff like that it was this kind of real galvanizing the people and i said to chris i want to put bright sparks out there for everybody for those reasons because if they sit and they listen to those stories from people at a time where everything was in flux there were really interesting little stories that came through from that, for example, with engineers who were very smart, very clever, who worked for military companies, but had, and don't forget, you know, this is at the time of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. So they were really conflicted. It was like, well, this is great and it pays me, but I'm making stuff that kind of contributes to killing people and I don't want to do that. And then you had the synth industry kind of come up. And they were like, I want to go do this. And for me, that was like a bit of a moment when two or three engineers said pretty much the same thing. And I, and I just kind of translated it to now. It's like, we need to start listening to people and developing empathy again and deciding that actually we don't want to do that shit. We want to do this shit now. Mm. So, yeah, that's kind of my hope, but that's a very naive, hippie kind of idea. <laughs> <laughs> well, the interview I did with Null Sleep, who's a chiptune artist or a chiptune pioneer, he, he said about plur, peace, love, unity and respect, and um, about how those hippie values are very cheesy, but there's um, there's a deep love in them, and, and that is um, yeah, it's still a prevailing idea. You know, It still means a lot to people. Um, I call social media the devil's social media. That's how I refer to it now. <laughs> Yeah, it's a scary... In fact, I said to somebody, I suffer from social media anxiety. It's not social anxiety, it's just social media. Me you know, too. You think, oh, I'm this, and then it's like, do I need to? No. And it's not even controversial. It's just like giving something to yourself away, and it's like, I don't know. I, what I loved... In fact, it's funny, because when I did that very first Underworld interview, the picture that they chose was Darren, uh, Carl and Rick, and Carl had this T-shirt uh, on, and it said, Faith, Hope love and reason and i was like that's it that's it again like rick says good things come out of a good heart that's obsessed i'm like that's it yeah man absolutely well it's um a great note to end on perfect <laughs> good things come out of a good heart that's obsessed and faith hope love and reason definitely brilliant thank you very much what a lovely guy Dave is. Um, he's one of those people I've seen on Sonic State about a thousand times. And um, yeah, it's amazing to actually have a conversation and interact with him. Uh, I love his story. Such a revolutionary device. The uh, fat boy was absolutely incredible. Um, all of the software instruments he makes are unbelievably good as well. He's a very passionate man. And um, it's amazing that he says about being a custodian of the classic synthesizer. I never looked at it that way. 
Okay, great to speak to Dave. Um, we've got another episode next week, which is with a guy who's a producer from Bristol. He's called Om Unit. He had access to some of the early Metalheads releases uh, to remix a few years ago. Uh, we talk about his entire career. Um, thank you very much again for listening. Uh, you can donate in lots of different ways. Uh, any support is good. Any nice comments are just really good to read. Um, thank you very much for listening. I'm Midiera and I'll see you again soon.